The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit voicesofwrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch, episode 43, covering Bushido Code of the Warrior 2013 from the Queensboro Elks Lodge in Queens, New York on July 27, 2013. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed, or you can find us on our own podcast feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you'd like to donate to this show, just click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to our redcircle.com landing page. You click the box that says sponsor of this podcast, and you can set up a one-time or reoccurring donation. No obligation whatsoever, but I would like to thank all of our previous donors. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Aaron Mike Spears. Joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Case Lowe. And Case, this was a show that I know that you were eagerly anticipating my response to. But it's been a very interesting 2013 in Dragon Gate USA. And we're getting to a part where, you know, Dragon Gate USA, we're in the final 10 shows now. And it, in a lot of ways, this show just kind of forged an identity that I was not seeing in January with the, the promotion that kind of is coming together in this post-WrestleMania weekend 2013, the biggest weekend in the company's history. And now they're on the path now to the fourth anniversary show that we'll be talking about next week. And... Before that, we have Bushido Code the Warrior. With the exception of the fourth anniversary show that we'll talk about next week, I have vivid memories of watching every show from here on out because the first Drangit USA show that I watched live on iPay-Per-View was Bushido Code of the Warrior 2013. I remember where I watched it. I remember uh, being really excited because at this point I was so in on Ring of Honor eye pay-per-views when they worked, and we'll be talking about that in this episode, and to have just more content to consume because at this point I'm 14, uh, obviously not doing great socially if I'm watching a Dragon Gate USA eye pay-per-view, and just trying to immerse myself in as much wrestling as humanly possible and I don't know how Mike feels about this show, but I left with very warm memories. I liked this show a lot. 
Well, Case, I'm going to let you keep the anticipation until the show <laughs> review itself. Uh, it, it's interesting at this point because at least I know you mentioned like in your life you're entering high school and this is kind of thing you're obsessed with. I remember like myself, like I was in a time where I was trying to get out of Miami, Florida. I was in a job though, although I enjoyed the job, I was just like, there's no advancement for me here. And, you know, like this was a time where I really kind of, if I lost touch of Dragon Gate USA, it was only because I was more in touch with Dragon Gate proper at that time. And, you, you know, like this is like the real like last moments before the uh, indie wrestling boom that would kick off and actually kind of started to kick off at WrestleMania weekend. So it's a real interesting time in the wrestling industry. And kids know that we're going to be talking a lot about some of our old favorites this week. And I know that you've tossed on something that will be the first time we're going to be talking to talking about on this newswire. So, okay, so let's get that underway. Yeah, I'm, we're, we're going to start with Ring of Honor, but there's a, a new indie entering our timeline at this point that I, I really think, in the context of Drangit USA, really has to be discussed. But we are going to start off with Ring of Honor and their iPay-Per-View woes that continued uh, on May 4th, 2013. This was the Border Wars show in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. This is another show that I remember watching live. I was very excited about this when it happened. Uh, the dark match on this show, which I'm just now noticing, uh, I don't know who the flatliners are of Asylum and Matt Burns, but they lost to Josh Alexander and Ethan Page on that show. So uh, that's good for <laughs> Ethan Page. And then that show, you had the CNC Wrestle Factory defeat ACH and Tadarius Thomas, Roderick Strong over Mike Bennett, an I Quit match with BJ Whitmer going over on Rhett Titus, the scum tandem of Cliff Compton and Jimmy Jacobs defeated Jay Lethal and Michael Elgin, although Kevin Steen did a run-in to replace the uh, kayfabe injured Jay Lethal. And then your final matches on the show, Eddie Edwards defeated Pro Wrestling Noah's Taiji Ishimori. The ROH TV title was defended by Matt Taven over Mark Briscoe. Davey Richards in 17 minutes and 57 seconds defeated Paul London via shoot face stomp. Uh, just one of the most vicious things I've ever seen. This was supposed to be Davey versus Marafuji, but Marafuji had to pull out due to injury. They got Paul London instead, and Paul London received a double stomp to the brain. And then your main event, Jay Briscoe defended the ROH World title over Adam Cole. Uh, Mike, are you watching the product at all at this time? Do you have any recollection of any of this happening? Oh, I remember the double stomp. I mean, how can't you remember like one of the more brutal things? Uh, Paul London at this phase, like real wilderness wandering period for Paul London before Lucha Underground. Even for Paul and... London standards, a real <laughs> wilderness phase. Yeah, yeah. No, like I, the, the thing that struck me was I forgot that they were trying to get back with Noah at this time, which was – I think some of it was also being in Toronto. Toronto is one of those wrestling areas that for Ring of Honor, they always tried to do really well there. And I mean, they were stuck in this old hockey arena, the Ted Reed Reeve Arena. And I believe that probably had some to do with their pay-per-view woes. But for the most part, I mean, keeping tabs of it slightly, there'd be something that would be brought up on this Bushido show that re-interest or redeveloped my interest in Ring of Honor. But at this time, I mean... Uh, Jay Briscoe's Howl Run was fine. Uh, the, it just was like one of those shows that like this was a big show for them. And, and you know, it's just constantly Ring of Honor two steps forward, two steps backing at this point. Yeah, this was a very average at best 
in-ring show from them. I would almost call it a below-average performance from Ring of Honor at this time period because Briscoe versus Cole did not deliver the way that you would have hoped for it to. The really the the big match on this show was Davey versus London, and then on the TV taping is they did Roddy versus Taiji Ishimori. That was excellent. And speaking of those TV tapings, Dave talks about in The Observer when he reviews the show that attendance for Border Wars was down 300 from 1,400 in 2012 when Steen won the world title to 1,100 on this show headlined by Jay Briscoe versus Adam Cole. They once again tried to do TV tapings after the iPay-Per-View, and Mike, those TV tapings drew 300 people. They had to move everyone to the hard cam, just like they did in Chicago, and it was said to be a morale killer for Ring of Honor. Yeah, because Ted Reeve Arena, and in case you're not a hockey person, that's where the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, minor league team, the Toronto Marlies, played. So, like, this was, like, a larger venue for them, and this is, like, at a time that when we talk about Best in the World 2013, they had the same issue there as well. So, it's just, like... It's at a time that like there will be a catalyst that happens. It'll be a very clear catalyst. But Ring of Honor, if you are Sinclair Broadcasting Group, and I would never want to be Sinclair Broadcasting Group, you kind of have to wonder if this was like, yes, you're getting the free TV or you're getting the very cheap TV for your affiliates, but you look at this business and it's not sustainable whatsoever. No, and things would only get worse for them as we now fast forward to June 22nd, 2013. This was Ring of Honor Best in the World. This was in Baltimore, Maryland at the Dewburns Arena, which this might have been the last time they ran there. I know this was kind of one of Cornette's things as he wanted a home base for Ring of Honor when he took over and they ran so many TV tapings in the Dewburns Arena. I don't remember if they ever went back there after this, but I do know that they ran an iPay-Per-View with BJ Whitmore over Mike Bennett, the American Wolves over ACH and TD Thomas. Adam Cole defeated Roderick Strong by countout. I don't remember that result. I would like to know exactly what they did there. Michael Elgin defeated Tommaso Ciampa. Matt Taven retained the TV title over both Jay Lethal and Jimmy Jacobs. There was a three-way tag team match for the tag team belts with Red Dragon defending over CNC Wrestle Factory and Cliff Compton and Rhett Titus. And then your big matches on this show, no DQ match with Matt Hardy defeating Kevin Steen. And your main event, the ROH World Title Match with Jay Briscoe retaining the Ring of Honor World Title over Mark Briscoe. Now, there's a few different things I want to talk about here. I will take this from the Observer where Dave reviewed this show, where Dave says, Ring of Honor is filled with uncertainty after an announcement that they were dropping iPay-Per-View and questions regarding the future of much of the key talent. Over the weekend, Jay Briscoe, the company's champion, retained his title with wins over Brother Mark at the Best in the World Eye pay-per-view on 622 in Baltimore, and then over Matt Hardy at the television tapings the next afternoon at the same Dewburns Arena. However, at the tapings, an angle was shot. On the first hour of the tapings, Nigel McGuinness announced that Jay re-injured his shoulder, and Mark suffered a concussion in their match. In the third hour, after Jay had pinned Hardy, the members of Scum did an injury angle where Mark took several chair shots with his work concussion, and Hardy came off the top rope stomping on Jay's injured shoulder. The angle was to explain the Briscoes being gone. From a storyline standpoint, the story is that now Mark is out of action due to severe head trauma, while Jay is out of action with a fractured shoulder and a torn rotator cuff. ROH sent out a release saying they don't know how long both will be out of action. 
Both Mark and Jay's contracts expire on June 30th, and they haven't signed new deals as of now. At one point, it looked like there was a good chance that they were going to take a WWE developmental deal or were allowing their contracts to expire to at least negotiate and consider that possibility. Mike, I will direct you to a tweet from the Voices of Wrestling Twitter account. This was tweeted on September 26th, 2015. And this is a tweet that I think about often. I believe this was a Joe Lanza tweet where he says, In 100 years, people will watch Jay Briscoe tapes and wonder why he wasn't a megastar, and then they will see his Twitter. And we are currently embroiled in a lot of Jay Briscoe Twitter drama. Yeah, so it did seem like, at least from the outside as a fan, that he was going to go, that they were going to go to WWE, but Jay Briscoe's Twitter account... This was like one of the first, other than like the Bucks kind of becoming Twitter characters, and we could talk later about the positives and negatives about wrestlers on social media as influenced by the Young Bucks. <laughs> Jay Briscoe did not have that issue. It was other things that Jay Briscoe was tweeting. You could certainly Google Jay Briscoe tweets, and you could figure out what he was tweeting there. But it was something where, like, especially with Ring of Honor was not a healthy promotion this time, really wrestling in general was not in a healthy period in 2013 and you know like you had like this thing where like they had jay briscoe as champion and he was having solid matches but he was out of contract and, and you know i mean he was going to try to test the market and he came back and bite him with his things he did on social media probably torpedoed the uh, sliding doors universe as we like to say where the briscoe brothers would have would have signed and would have shown up in NXT in 2013. Yeah, and if there was ever a time to succeed in NXT, it would have been signing at that point. This was two years after the cosmetically pleasing incident where the Briscoes had had a tryout with WWE. I, I know Naylor's tweeted out the list before of when he showed up to FCW. He had a list of about 25 guys that he said, these are who you should sign. And you had guys like Pac and Samurai Del Sol on the list guys that ended up with contracts and the Briscoe brothers were two guys on the list that, that never made it there. They were considered uh, not to be cosmetically pleasing for the polished New York territory. And then they had another, uh, a chance to go a few years later. And uh, we saw that downfall there, which, you know, it's just no, no point in getting into on this show. It's unfortunate, although it did lead to uh, Jay Briscoe returning to ring of honor and having arguably the best run of his career there. The other thing that is notable from this week, and well, there's two things real quick, and it's funny that this is not even a big story. I think it shows just uh, the flaws with this unit, but Scum wrapped up on that television taping. Uh, The final episode that they taped was an eight-man tag team steel cage warfare match with BJ Whitmer, Jay Lethal, Kevin Cena, Michael Elgin defeating Cliff Compton, Jimmy Jacobs, Rhett Titus, and Rhino to rid Ring of Honor of scum but as for the i pay-per-view show this was the absolute worst ring of honor i pay-per-view performance that there ever was this show was unwatchable from start to finish nothing worked the entire time it was one big loading screen for all three hours so i will once again read from the observer as dave says ROH made no statements during the show or after the show. It wasn't until two days later when the company issued a statement regarding the problems, stating that they would no longer stream live 
ROH said this past weekend at Best in the World in Baltimore, Maryland, Ring of Honor proved once again from top to bottom why our talent is truly the best in wrestling today. Unfortunately, there were some issues with the live iPay-Per-View stream that wound up distracting from the energy and action in the ring. For this, we sincerely apologize to all fans that encountered problems. Because of how much we value the support of our fans and understand the imperfections of the live streaming technology, Best in the World will be the last iPay-Per-View stream that we will be broadcasting live. All future main event shows will now be offered as a video on demand, which will allow Ring of Honor to present a flawless show and to truly depict the excellence of our product. This new policy goes into effect for Death Before Dishonor, which takes place on September 20th in Philadelphia. Mike, I will tell you right now, Death Before Dishonor was broadcast live on iPay-Per-View. <laughs> and it's something where we've talked about iPay-Per-View issues pretty much ever since the Go Fight Live era case. Like, this has been a thing. Gabe has the WWN Live platform that he's been doing everything based off of. Ring of Honor had its own issues with Go Fight Live and their own things with this. And it's something that's now in 2021, looking back at this, it's remarkable that the technology has come in such a way that now this isn't even a consideration anymore other than evolve streams where you'd have the tweets uh, from Gabe Spolsky asking us, how's this stream? But and this was something in Ring of Honor where everything was kind of looking like not dissimilar to when uh, all the issues leading up to Sinclair Broadcasting buying the company. Like, Case, hey, so what would you say have been the major step forwards in Ring of Honors in the Sinclair era up until this 2013 of Death Before Dishonor show? I mean, they did it. Supercard of Honor, sorry. They, they didn't die which I think is the biggest positive you could make. Yeah. And, and, and I'm sorry, I was preparing the best in the world. Yeah, they didn't die. They had a conglomerate now with infinite uh, pockets, but the conglomerate, like, the production value took really late for Sinclair Broadcasting Group to see, like, okay, this is something we should actually invest money into. So I understand why they're like, this has just been a hassle. We're going to do away with it, and then two months later bring it back. But... You know, it. they have a lot of people are leaving the Indies. A lot of people will be leaving Ring of Honor. Their champion looked like before he uh, turn, turned around and showed his ass, frankly, on Twitter. looked like he was <laughs> on the way out. Before he did a shoot heel turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, without getting into the exact content there, again, y'all could search it. It's <laughs> not just not ideal. That... Uh, a real blemish on the Briscoes record because I am a big fan of their in-ring work. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah, but like you like look at this promotion, and we've it was something that was very clearly like with how wrestling was. Like you had WWE unchallenged at the mountaintop, TNA that would make their attempts, make their attempts, but now they're kind, they're clearly situated as number two, and then there was a real battle for number three for several years, and neither Ring of Honor or Dragon Gate USA looked like that they were in necessarily a upward trajectory, and if anything. You look at like the last like six months of Dragon Gate USA, and it's not uh, like it obviously never would happen. But there could be an argument to be made that Dragon Gate USA, in some weird perverse way, had more momentum than Ring of Honor at this time. Yeah, it's it's funny looking back at this now. I was thinking about that when I was putting together these notes of Ring of Honor is clearly more popular. I mean, really, the indie to watch at this point is PWG, and right. two weeks from now. 
we'll talk about a PWG show that that took place that I legitimately think is the best independent wrestling show to ever take place. Like it is my number one of all time. But it, it's weird that Dragon USA was I don't know if it was a tarnished brand. I don't know what it was, but they could not catch on in a show like this compared to a Border Wars or a Best in the World 2013, where, again, I'm watching every Ring of Honor show at this point. I started going to Ring of Honor shows in November of 2013, and the stark contrast of the first Ring of Honor show I went to, where I walk in the door and Jay Lethal and Michael Elgin are sitting at a at a wooden table with no Ring of Honor branding on it doing an autograph signing— and it just, I, you know, it just feels like an indie show to the last Ring of Honor show I was at, which was the ROH New Japan Global War show in 2016, where I was going, oh my God, this feels like a major league production, like good for these guys. It's weird that at this point, Sinclair has been involved for two years in Ring of Honor and their TV looks awful. That early Sinclair Ring of Honor TV is just the ugliest aesthetic of anything I've ever seen on TV. All the match cards are like brown and orange, and it just looks terrible. I hate the way that stuff looked. It's really not until this time in early 2014 where they changed the Ring of Honor logo, and I remember they added a lot of gold into their like their graphic packages, and it looks so much better. But yeah, this is a rough time for Ring of Honor. I don't, I don't like this product at the time. Yeah, and they would do those upgrades, but they would still have light trees. They would not buy a light truss, a light rig, until much later. So, like, the production was always look, it, it looked dark, it looked shitty, and there was just no reason for them to invest that into it. And even though they, they do, like, these updates there, but it just was not a promotion at the point where, like, like frankly, other than, like, the, the content, the subsidized content, bad investment at that time. I, I think it's just like you look at it and you're like, what does the uh, corporate master, and again, putting everything about Sinclair Broadcast Group aside, it's not a healthy product. It's not a, it, it is a pretty poison thing, and it would take really, and we'll get into this over the next few weeks, what would start the resurgence of Ring of Honor, and that would be things that actually came from Dragon Gate USA. Well, there is a promotion that we need to talk about that we have not talked about on this show before a promotion with no giant conglomerate backing that because of the venue they were running in Providence, Rhode Island, kind of looked like a big deal. And they put on a show on July 21st, 2013. I'm talking about Beyond Wrestling, and I'm talking about the first American Rana event, which I, I, I'll, I'll run down the card, and then I, I guess I could ask you about this, but I, I this American Rana 2013 card from, was it pronounced Fet Music in Providence? Feedy Music? Which one was it? Uh, Fet. 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 That makes more sense. So, Fet Music, Providence, Rhode Island, Beyond Wrestling, American Rana. This show opens with Drew Gulak defeating Chris Dickinson. There was a four-way tag team match with Team Tremendous, uh, the team we now know as LAX, a team called The Hoods, who I don't remember, and the Minutemen. Uh, La Tabernacle, the team, defeated Aaron Epic and Dave Cole. Those were kind of beyond regular guys that never really ventured out, at least never got pushed anywhere else. Colt Cabana. But Tabernacle did. It was Tabernacle. Were they Chikara? What What did they do? They did Chikara. Yeah, that, that makes sense given their name because it's kind of funky. Uh, Colt Cabana defeated Jaka. Kevin Steen defeated Masada. Johnny Gargano defeated JT Dunn. 
Anthony Stone, who looked like he was going to be a real standout in the scene at the time, he defeated A.R. Fox. And the main event was Eddie Edwards defeating Biff Busick. Mike, I don't know, was this show on your radar when it happened? I mean, I certainly read about it, and I saw, like, things about it, but, like, this was something that it was, you, like, look at this card, and you'd see a lot of standouts there, a lot of people that would become major figures over the next eight years, like, to this day, and, like, you kind of see it coming together for them. I mean, beyond to that point, I believe, for the most part, was mainly done behind closed doors. Like, I remember, like, the initial appeal with uh, Beyond for the longest time was that it was no fans. Like, basically, they were doing wrestling that you would see right now in 2021, weirdly <laughs> enough. But it was one of those things that, like, Beyond, this was, like, a big step over. And American Rana, like, to this day, has become, like, their big show in a lot of ways. And especially, like, looking at, like, for a long time, the FET was their, FET music was their big venue. And that was, like, their big place. And, you know, this this was something that, like, you, like, look at the names as, like, I have not watched the show. I will not be probably watching the show. But, like, you look at this and... It's definitely like something that you would look at how the next like year, the next decade would happen in independent wrestling, and this is kind of, it, I wouldn't say this is like the true start, but like you're starting to see an emergence here of a promotion that would become the biggest name in uh, in New England. I, I know there's a clear delineation between the Northeast and New England, but like became like the big product out there. Well, what we had was the birth of a new super indie. And I have to give credit to Drew Cordero, who was promoting Beyond at the time. And I have a lot of thoughts on the way Drew handles his business. Some of it I like, some of it I don't. But at the time, someone who, like me, was consuming PWG, consuming Dragon Gate USA, consuming Ring of Honor, but wanting more, Drew did a tremendous job of making sure that uh, his product was readily available. Beyond shows were very easy to watch. You could stream them on. They, they were for. Uh, they were on YouTube for purchase. And I remember listening to an interview that Drew did with PW Ponderings talking about this show because I think I probably heard Cole Cabana talk about it. I probably heard Kevin Steen talk about it on Kevin's Weekend Escapades, and it certainly uh, piqued my interest. And then I happened to hear an interview with Drew because I was like, oh, that's the show that Steen and Cabana were on. And Drew does a really hard sell of the main event of Eddie Edwards versus Biff Busick, basically saying like, hey, this is the direction that wrestling is going towards. And it is something that becomes very apparent, maybe not necessarily this weekend for Dragon Gate USA, but coming up very soon, the names like Biff Busick and Drew Gulak are going to mean a whole lot to this promotion. Yeah, because Biff Busick was kind of the ace of beyond before they had an ace before it was the whole thing of joey janela and david Sarr. so like it's something that like this was like the major step forward and if you look at someone like beth busick who was really recently there he was weirdly also a chikara guy but mostly known for czw like this was kind of like the emergence of something that would become a major force like way after like like by the time that we're done with the serious case beyond wrestling will still kind of be in its fledgling stage but when you like look at modern day wrestling i mean beyond is one of the major super indies that you know we had before the shutdown so with that in mind we now turn our attention to the dragon usa and evolve universe and we have a newswire note from may 27th 2013 where gabe sapolsky says we can now announce that sammy callahan has wrestled on his final dragon usa and evolve event he is referring to the Mercury Rising 2013 show. We want to extend a heartfelt thank you to Sammy for being an important part of Dragon Gate USA and Evolve history. 
Callahan started at the bottom of the card and through hard work and determination became a main player in the WWN Live family. Sammy first made waves by forming the DUF and entering an intense feud against AR Fox. Shortly after his feud versus Fox started, Callahan reached another turning point when he battled Fit Finley at Evolve 9 in a bout that was voted by the fans as the 2011 Drangit USA and Evolve match of the year. Callahan went on to give us many memorable moments, including the infamous closing of the former ECW arena at Evolve 10. His resume of great matches is at the top of the Dragon USN Evolve history, including the rematch versus Finley at Evolve 11, a classic versus El Generico at Evolve 13, and an epic Open the Freedom Gate title match against Johnny Gargano at Evolve 18. Thanks for everything, Sammy. We are sure you're headed for great success. So, Mike, we have watched every bit of Sammy Callahan that exists in Drangate USA. We did not watch any of the Evolve stuff. I, I know at this point it, he was tearing it up in PWG. He went out with a bang and uh, a 60-minute Ironman match with Adam Cole at his final PWG show. Overall, we kind of talked about it at Mercury Rising, but we focused it more just on Duff as a whole. Your thoughts on Sammy Callahan's run? I mean, this is easily the most I've enjoyed Sammy Callahan in his entire wrestling career. Yeah. I, I, I think that, that I could say that pretty definitively, knowing who what kind of wrestler he is now with the career he had after he left NXT. And, you know, it's something where, like, I don't think the stuff of his that he was involved in that I did not enjoy was not because of Sammy Callahan. It was because of the booking. But I think that like, you look at Sammy Callahan and you look at, like, the departures there. Like, he was someone that was really that you put on the show, like, I remember still the match he had from Naruki Doi in Low Country in Indianapolis as, like, one of, like, the fond memories of him. But, like, whenever, like, they, they put him in these matches and these situations where he could really excel, he excelled. And then the other stuff he was doing, like, the Finley match and Evolve, and then his PWG run, like, he felt like a guy that was really ascendant and was signing at the right time, or maybe a little bit before the right time because he didn't have, like, the run as, like, the guy in a lot of ways. Callahan ends up wrestling 32 total matches for Drangit USA if you include the dark matches at the first anniversary show and then at Bushido Code of the Warrior 2010 in a seven-way fray match that we did not see, but that match also had Tommaso Ciampa in it, among others. I think Callahan's 2011 is really impressive because he debuts in earnest on the final show of 2010 and then in 2011 begins the year with a match in NYC against Akira Tozawa that I remember loving. And then Callahan goes from there. He's got a match with Rich Swan in your neck of the woods that opened the Southern Gate. He has the Mochizuki match at Fearless 2011 and then the Enter the Dragon tag match where it's he and Eric Cannon against Mochizuki and Sasumu. The Doi match from Indianapolis. The Sammy, uh, I'm sorry, the John Davis match from Revolt. The United Gate match that I love, that's uh, Shima and Ricochet against Cal uh, Cannon and Callahan. And then the Extreme Warfare match that was not good, but was probably the best thing we got out of Sabu. So we see in one calendar year, he goes from a non-entity in the opening match to, uh, you know, headlining the final show and being a legitimate main event player. Unfortunately, it's 2012. He's doing a lot of big work and Evolve. He was suspended for a Drangit USA weekend and was wrestling Sabu on another weekend, so we unfortunately did not get to see a lot of him there. But it is a really impressive run, and I think it is one of the things that has aged well, considering what we've seen from Callahan in the time since. 
Oh, absolutely. I remember like my preconceived notions and my memory of it in the moment. I was very down on DUF, and I was very and you know some of the stuff that I was down on still was down on on the three watch. But like you look at like the stuff like he had that match with with Shima in 2012 that was one of my top matches of the year. The match with Doi that I talked about earlier, and you you, you kind of got to see like he was never going to be like a true Dragon Gate guy in the way that the people we saw that they took from DGUSA. I'm not going to do the Mark Teixeira analogy here, <laughs> but he was someone that, that like he kind of found and made his own in a lot of the same way that like John Moxley did. And it was something that I don't think he left the promotion in a better place. I don't think he had that impact on it a lot of way. I think that, that things were out of the control of the wrestlers really at that point. But, you know, I think that you like look back at his uh, history in Dragon Gate USA and you've, I mean, he wouldn't have gotten signed without this. So, like, you had to look at his in success. No, and I, I think the biggest thing you can say is that he gave Gabe a legitimate American guy to turn to other than Gargano because it seemed like just about every weekend Callahan was on these cards, he was wrestling a Dragon Gate guy. It's, you know, it's Tozawa. He wrestled Yoshino. He wrestled Mochizuki and Susumu. He wrestled Doi. He wrestled Shima and Ricochet as a team. He wrestled BB Hulk. He wrestled Shima in a singles. He wrestled Tozawa again and then wrestled Jimmy Susumu and California. And so it's a it's a testament to Callahan. You know, he hit hard. Dragon Gate guys hit hard back. It was a good run. I really enjoyed a lot of the Sammy Callahan stuff, especially when he wasn't in the ring with Sabu, which was not Callahan's fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something that even like when I was like watching, I was like, why do they have these guys with Sabu? It's not on him there. So just after the Callahan announcement, which was on May 27th, we had the Evolve Florida triple shot on May 30th through June 2nd. Evolve 20 was the first show of this weekend. It opened with a non-title match between Johnny Gargano and Matt Jackson. Then Brian Cage defeated Chuck Taylor. A six-way fray where Lince Dorado beat Andrew Everett, Caleb Conley, John Davis, Shane Strickland, and Tommy Taylor. Tomahawk TT defeated Ata in a Dragon Gate offer match. And then your final three matches on the show, the Bravado Brothers defeated Maxwell Chicago and Sugar Dunkerton. Anthony Nice defeated Samurai Del Sol in your main event Evolve title match. A.R. Fox defeats Nick Jackson. I will run through the Evolve 21. Why, well, Mike, let's actually, let's, let, let me get your thoughts on that card. Let's break this down show by show. What, what are your thoughts on Evolve 20 here? I mean, it, it's something where, like, we're starting to see the Bravado Brothers who will become a factor. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, how, like, how am I going to say that? But like, you look at this, and it's interesting to me the people that Gabe tried out on DGUSA that quickly he realized weren't DGUSA ability in a lot of ways, and that they kind of found a role here, like Maxwell Chicago, Sugar Dunkerton, and, you know, they, they kind of made that Jacksonville spot a little bit of a home base before they really moved to Tampa in a lot of ways. Yeah, I like the Tomahawk TT versus Ata match on this show quite a bit. I actually remember when this show got uploaded to Flow Slam. I remember being excited about being able to finally see that match because there's no hard copies of these shows anywhere. They only existed digitally. And uh, there's one minor botch. But other than that, it is a very good showcase for what they're capable of. 
And that would continue on to Evolve 21, the USA versus the World event from the Edge Concert Hall in Jacksonville, Florida. This had Caleb Conley defeating Tommy Taylor, Lindsay Dorado defeating Johnny Vandal, the Bravados going over on Andrew Everett and Derek Rice, who we see once again. There is a John Davis versus Chuck Taylor no DQ match that, despite all of the Drangit USA and Evolve matches that have been pulled from YouTube, this is still on there. There will be a link in the episode description because it is worth watching. That match is so much better than it has any right to be. And then other things on this show, Anthony Neese and Brian Cage of the, uh, I guess, premier athlete adjacent brand defeat the Young Bucks. Samurai Del Sol defeats Shane Strickland. A.R. Fox retains the Evolve title over Ata, and then Tomahawk TT defeats Johnny Gargano, leading to a USA vs. the World tiebreaker, where A.R. Fox and Johnny Gargano defeat Ata and Tomahawk TT. Yeah, uh, it's it's something that I'm like looking at this show. I did not watch the showcase, so you probably know more about this one than I do. And you like you look at it, and there's a lot of like interesting decisions being made, especially the the Bucks losing to Brian Cage and Anthony Nice at this point. But, like, it's interesting, like, how much, and maybe this is another thing that, like, my memory wasn't exactly right about this, was I always kind of felt like that Gabe booked Tomahawk, TT, and Ada not a lot, but, like, going through these things, and especially, like, when we get to talk about Bushido, he gave them the ball. It just was very clear that they're on a very short time span. Yeah, it's, I, I feel like Gabe, and I don't know this to be true, this is pure speculation from watching these cards, I think he looked at Tomahawk TT as a guy that he could probably headline some shows with in the future, and Ato was kind of just the flippy guy, because Ato's around for a really long time, and I don't know if Gabe ever really knows what to do with him. Uh, He gets the Evolve title match on that show, and then he's in a really big match on Evolve 22, which I'll talk about that card now. This was from Ybor City at the Orpheum, where Caleb Conley defeats Chuck Taylor, Ivalice defeats Mia Yim, Anthony Nice goes over on Tommy Taylor, the Dos Bindohos bros, and Shane Strickland defeat the Bravados and Andrew Everett, Evolve title match with AR Fox going over on Lince Dorado, Brian Cage wins a squash over Derek Rise. John Davis then beats Brian Cage. And then your big two matches, Johnny Gargano retains the Open the Freedom Gate title over Samurai Del Sol. And the Open the United Gate title match where the Young Bucks defeated Ata in Tomahawk TT, which is an excellent, excellent double shot to end that show. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to hunt down this show. It's, I was, it's I, a I, really I, good one. It, it's one of those that... If the Evolve library, forget now with the network capabilities, but even just in the last five years, if the Evolve library had been marketed with any sort of a clue, Evolve 22 would be one of those shows that people would point to because this whole show is really, really good. Yeah, yeah, and you like look at it, and like the big question I would have because what we'll be talking about in future weeks about the Millennials landing is like that's the match that needs to happen, and kind of interesting that it does not happen on a DG USA show. Yeah, one you know? could argue it's a detriment to Dragon USA that this big match did not happen for Dragon USA. Uh I think that's a sin if you ask me. I'd write like, it down. I'm writing that down right now. Case. And and I think you should add not doing Gargano versus Callahan and Dragon USA proper as well. 
Yeah, those are two completely different things that they should have had. This this is going in my notebook as a sin, as two sins. Because, because yeah, because you never had Gargano versus uh, Sammy Callahan when that would have been like your two, like your big American heel and your big American face. And then, you know, the one thing I'll say other than the the biggest cardinal sin I would say in this promotion's history is not putting the belt on Akira Tozawa is this match is a huge match, even more so in the hindsight of where these four guys' career would go. And when you do these excursions, you want to have them have like these like moments that like you're able to say like, oh yeah, they had X, Y, and Z. I mean, the big thing for Shingo was, was that Shingo won the ROH uh, a tag team title or was like competing for the titles at that point. For Tozawa, it's like, wow, this guy refound his career. You don't really have that takeaway for Tomahawk and Ada. No, you don't. And I, and, you know, Gargano versus Callahan happened on an Evolve show, but I think it would have been better suited on a Drangate USA card. I think it would have made more sense. And yeah, Tomahawk, TT, and Ata, you know, for a variety of reasons, I just, I don't think anybody's watching the product at this time, but the talent is clearly there and they have matches that are very, very good. The Young Bucks match at Evolve 22 being one of them. It comes out after the show that Samurai Del Sol has signed a WWE contract. So I know we just asked with Sammy Callahan, or I, I, I just asked you, Mike, but your thoughts on the Samurai Del Sol run in Dragon USA? Yeah. So different kind of thoughts. Uh, whereas Callahan was probably taken a step too early, Samurai Del Sol still had the world in front of him. And as we talked about when he came into promotion, he was a hotly contested person. <laughs> so, I mean, like, this is, I mean, there are other NXT signings that happen way too early, but few things like i would have been interested to see the sliding door universe where samurai del sol does not sign with wwe for another year few years because there's so much that was still left on the table there's so much growing because he was someone that you definitely saw grow from that match against masato yoshino that convinced masato yoshino that he didn't need to come to america anymore <laughs> to his final weekend and you know it's just one of those things like this one i, I with callahan i'm like yeah no that that makes sense like like, like sammy callahan make it going to wwe at that point like putting aside wwe and what it means in 2021 makes sense right like like, like sammy callahan signing then at that point it, it, it's not a bad decision there but samurai del sol he didn't even do japan they would have loved him in Japan. And it's just one of those things that like, and I know we talked about it, but imagine Samurai Del Sol and the millennials that, that probably was on the table at one point. He's been in the WWE for almost eight years now. Insane. It's insane. And it's, you know, I, I mean, there was, you know, uh, I, I would argue, cause I, I'll count Gabe in this kind of a three-way bidding war with Del Sol, because again, he, was desperately wanted by AAA at the time and could have been a major act in Mexico. And then obviously WWE wanted him. There was probably some uh, bitterness towards the original Sin Cara for him flaming out the way he did. And then, you know, Gabe had his stake there. And again, we don't really know if Drangate Japan really ever wanted him or not, but it certainly would make sense if you remove the Masato Yoshino match from the equation that he would be a guy that would do very well in that promotion it just sucks that, I mean, that this is, it's his entire career, and I don't ever anticipate him leaving, and if he does, he'll probably, and rightfully so, cash in on Northeast Wrestling and, and those types of deals, but 2013 is when he signs. That is hard to believe. It's just kind of heartbreaking in a way, because of, like, because, like, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I say, like, 
he is someone who could have had the wrestling world in his hands. Oh, completely. Like, in his grip. And, you know, I mean, I am certain he's made a lot of money. I am certain that, you know, it's something where in 2021, I don't, I've never talked to Samurai Del Sol or Calistico. I don't know anyone who has. I don't know if there's any frustration there, but it seems like that was a decision he didn't regret. But as a fan, I just like look at the at the opportunities that could have been there and just makes you just kind of bitter in a way. So finally, we have our final three Newswire notes. I'll run through these quickly. June 10th, Gabe announces that it is official that Dragon USA will be heading back to Queens at the Elks Lodge and the Manhattan, New York Highline Ballroom. I only note this because when we were doing timelines in 2010 and 2011, Gabe would be booking months out for Dragon Gate USA where you would have the October announcement in seemingly June or July, if not a little bit sooner. Here it is a month and a half before the show takes place that Gabe is confirming dates for Dragon Gate USA, which I just I just find to be anecdotal. And then on July 19th, Gabe says in a newswire, Trent Beretta was on TNA Destination X last night under the name Greg Marichulo, while Jigsaw wrestled on the show under the name Rubix. Both are scheduled for the Dragon USA events in Queens and Manhattan. Before the rumors get started, we want to let you know that their TNA appearances will have no effect on their current or future Dragon USA and Evolve bookings. They will not use their TNA names in Dragon USA or Evolve. And then finally, the big one, July 25th, after a naming contest to name the gimmick match, which I did not remember, we finally had a name for the main event of our Bushido Code of the Warrior 2013 main event, the Gateway to Heaven match, which is, and I, do you want me to describe the rules now or when we talk about the match? Yeah, let's get into it now. It, it, it's funny. It is, uh, there's a YouTube video where Gabe uh, creates a little hype package to break down all of the rules, but it is, it, I think it's pretty simple. It's a two out of three falls match. The first fall, strict tag rules are infer- enforced with one referee in the ring and one on the outside. Second fall is Drangate rules. And the third fall, tables, ladders, and chairs are legal. If a team were to win the first two falls, they would be able to then choose any match of their liking for a future Drangate USA event. So these rules change. Right? Because on the pay-per-view... We'll get into what they say in the pay-per-view, because the pay-per-view was the clean sweep. You had to win all three falls, right? Oh, maybe that's it. I, I could have just transcribed that incorrectly. Oh, that's that's fine. That's fine. And I'll say this. If we're going to go from one to stable shootout, this is probably closer to one. Oh, yeah. No, this, know, like, is, this is... I'll, I'll talk about it when we talk about the match. I don't have an issue with the gateway to heaven. Yep, yep. But, yeah, you know, it's interesting because, like, you, you talk about how he booked things out in advance and how... He was made a very big point of doing so. And, of course, then also initially when he was booking things out in advance, he had a pay-per-view provider he had to be concerned about. And it was something that he made a big point of. Like he talked about, like, we make sure you know these things in advance. We're going to do so many events here. And now it's 45 days out, more or less, and he's announcing things. And it's just kind of like, look at this. And you're like, this isn't a time where I think Gabe is disengaged because there's definitely a program here where I feel like that it is his cup of tea and involves someone that he's always engaged with how he's booking, but it does seem like a, a, an approach that it does kind of feel like evolve now is getting the better run of it other than Johnny Gargano. 100%. So it's interesting. It's interesting set of, of notes. I would say 
Yeah, no, there's just a lot going on in, in wrestling right now. We spent a lot of time on that timeline, but I, I think going forward, it's important to contextualize what the wrestling world is doing while Dragon USA is slowly decaying. Exactly, and I think with that, it's time for us to get into the show itself. Let's do it. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like You know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever, but if you're really in this game to, to find value and find particular cards... It sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash VOWnet. Arenaclub.com slash VOWnet for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. All right, so as I said at the top, this is Bushido, Co. The Warrior 2013. It's from the Elks Lodge in Queens, New York on July 27th, 2013. And we open up to the ring where Rich Swong is singing a cappella all night long. He cu- He's coming out in his Worldwide International t-shirt that I completely forgot was a thing that says on the front in very big letters, please watch my back. 
Only thing on his mind, however, is Sean Gargano. He wants to fight him right here, right now. Brandon Tully comes out. You can't hear Brandon Tully on the microphone, but luckily Lenny Leonard is there to let us know that that Johnny Gargano is not ready and he has to stretch it out before the match. Yeah, I Gabe was clearly in the talent development phase of making Johnny Gargano a TV-ready wrestler. And so while I would love to just be able to turn on Dragon Gate USA and be able to watch great matches, I understand that that's not what Gabe was going for at this point. And, and like you said, he's putting a special amount of care into Gargano at this point, and I get it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on Please Watch My Back, Russell, uh, World One International t-shirt? Because completely forgot about it, and it rules. I think Pro Wrestling Tees, they don't sell that t-shirt, but I think they sell a World One International logo tee. That seems like a worthwhile investment. I just, uh, World One International did not last long enough, and especially in its original incarnation with Pac and the group. What a fun unit that was. Yeah, because like it was, you also had like Sachi Hoko Boy making a step forward in that. Uh, it, it's interesting what's on Pro Wrestling Tees. I, it's not updated. I have my own beliefs behind about who's behind that that store. If anyone in the company wants to tell me what the deal is, I would love to know. But it has an interesting bit of shirts. You can get yourself a, a Katoka retirement shirt on Pro Wrestling Tees. It is that that shirt does not fit in with the other things they offer. Not no no not at all. It is just really kind of wild when you just t- when you just it makes you think about it in a lot of ways. Uh, Ultimo but, has a pro wrestling tees store, but I don't I don't like what he's offering. But if pro wrestling tees would just give me like the the original Toriyaman logo T shirt, I would love that. Oh yeah, the Ultimo Dragon Gem. T-shirt? Yeah, that's all I yeah. want. Yeah yeah yeah. I'm looking at it right now. Worst logo Monster Express T shirt. Uh. They do have a Akatsuki t-shirt, which I th- I'd love to know how many t-shirts yeah, they sell there. Yeah, it's a hot seller. The, the Akatsuki, the Shiba Royale t-shirt. I think I'm the only Dial Hearts fan. I know a lot of people weren't into that unit. I really like them. It's a, I would check out the Dragon Gate Pro Wrestling Tees page sometime. It's very fun to look at. It, it's very, very interesting. So then we got into the first match of the show, as obviously John Gargano was not coming out. It was Uha Nation versus Jigsaw, and Uha won in nine minutes and fifty-eight seconds with the Uha combination. I thought this was a really good big versus little matchup. Jigsaw played his role of being the smaller guy to perfection. The only thing that I was concerned about is we just had Uha. He wrestled Sammy Callahan in a match where Callahan uh, took him to the ground and grinded things to a halt. And then we had Uha as just one of the bodies in that ladder match. This is a match against Jigsaw where Jigsaw is a proven name. Uha beating him, he's obviously the favorite, but it still does something for Uha. Do you think he took too much offense in this match? You know, that didn't cross my mind. I My big takeaway from this match was there's a definite, like, upgrade and uha like uha definitely has made a step forward when he had that most recent tour in dragon gate japan like that was my big takeaway i totally get like your concerns about it, especially with like how uha was kind of treated on wrestlemania weekend but i kind of came away with this going like oh uha and jigsaw that's a match you can throw out on any show and it'd be a solid opener you know i thought this was all in all just solid yeah, no, nice little match. I, I know, I remember at the time Gabe tweeting about how excited he was to have Uha back in the fold. And watching the show live, it would have been my first time seeing Uha because I'm just a 
about to start following Drangate in Japan in real time. I think at this point, I'd probably seen some matches on YouTube, but they would have been like Shima versus Mochizuki from the end of 2004 was a match that I know was circulated pretty well at the time. It just would have been whatever the hits were and nothing of the current realm. So this was my first time seeing Uha, and I remember being very impressed by him. And it's kind of impossible not to be. Yeah, completely. You know? And they had great chemistry. Like, Uha is someone that, in this match, like, I think basing and catching is kind of over-talked about in some toys. But everything was silky smooth here. I went three and a quarter on it. Him and Jigsaw worked well, and they had the really sick combination towards the end where he had him up. He Uha had up a Jigsaw for the Gorilla Press, and then Jigsaw transitions trying to do a Hurricane Rana, and then he converts it into a triple powerbomb. That was really tight. And then Uha combination is still one of those things you watch, and you're like, how is this guy doing this thing? This guy in the shape he's in should not be able to go standing moonsault and standing shooting star, and, the, and both the moonsault and shooting star are looking crisp and clean. And it's just a remarkable thing. It's a real bummer that Jigsaw stepped away from the promotion for about a year and a half, because he is really, he's so talented. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I feel like that, that again, this is a match that, you could if we are going to like at the end of this like book like okay what are we going to do for an opener on like our all-time USA show this is a solid opener like this is a match that you could have these two guys have 10 minutes and it does exactly what it's supposed to do and i mean i went three and a quarter and that's not a bad three and a quarter that's like oh yeah no this is what like if you're gonna do an opener building up to some crazy stuff on the card this is how you should start off your show i agree it got uha over which was the goal here absolutely and then we had a six-way Freestyle. The participants in this match were Scott Reed, Flurry Dallas, and Trina Michaels, Caleb Conley, Derek Rise, Drew Gulak, Orange Cassidy, and Shane Strickland. The fall in this match was Scott Reed hitting the roll of the dice. He has so many finishing moves, case that that like they don't ever like pick one and stick to it. But he got he got that on Shane Strickland after uh it was what in the lead up to this is that Conley had uh Shane Strickland into a pendulum submission. Larry Dallas distracted the referee that gave Rhea the ability to kick him to kick Strickland low throw uh Conley to the outside and then hit the roll of the dice for the pen I thought the finish was well done it is clear and we, we talked about this on the last show that Gabe wanted to do a much longer Caleb Conley versus Scott Reed feud but this is the last weekend we see Scott Reed I thought this was just a collection of spots though and I know that's you know maybe rich coming from me but I, it, you know, it was spots that were good, not great. I don't really think anyone stood out, which, as I've said before, I think the goal of these matches should be to have one guy really make an impact. And you kind of had six guys here. And I would take Conley out of that group because this is the point in time where I think Colin gets really, really good. But yeah, this didn't do a ton for me. You know, I have the person in this match that stood out to me. Who's that? And it's not going to be someone you expected. Derek Rise, I thought, was awesome in this. <laughs> I'm not going to co-sign that. That is that is your opinion, your take alone. Well, like, he did, like, this, like, really, like, he, like, bots that out of the thing. Like, he, like, shows as much fire as you want to have, like, a random person to. Like, I know for a while, I was like, I don't see what uh, Gabe saw in Derek Rise. In this match, I saw it. Like, this was still not a great match. I went three flat on it. But he looked good here. Uh, Strickland made a step forward because we remember how shaky... Shane Strickland has been on these shows before and you know it's something where like gentlemen's club here I've been kind of hard on it kind of it all kind of worked here 
Like, this was not, nothing consequential to me, but I came out of this going, like, okay, this is not one of those matches where I've talked about in the past where I'm, like, staring at my watch wondering where it was going to end. I felt like that this was perfectly adequate. No, not a bad match by any means. I just, I, I'm, I'm right at three stars as well, so I guess I can't tear it apart too much. I just didn't think anyone was particularly good in it either. That's fair. That is fair. Coming out after this match is John Davis. He lays out both Gulak and uh, Orange Cassidy. Chuck Taylor comes out for the save. Uh, Gabe being Gabe, having one match flow into the other. Then we have a bunkhouse match. Chuck Taylor versus John Davis. Chuck Taylor gets the win with a chokehold with using the stick from a plunger. And interesting stuff. Like it, It's something that definitely was building off of that Evolve match. And, you know, Chuck, sneaky, good plunder guy. Inventive plunder in this match, guys. It's not as good as the Evolve 21 match, which is legitimately excellent. But I thought this was so much fun. And I think the John Davis character, for all of its flaws, and again, we're still kind of dealing with the staring stuff, although I, 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 he doesn't do it here because he confronts the Gentleman's Club, but he still has that general demeanor. I still have issues with that, but I also have to wonder if he would have turned on the Gentleman's Club instead of turning on Gargano when he turned heel, where now you get a very clear, like, these guys just want to have fun versus John Davis who just wants to hurt people. If that character would have gotten over to a larger degree, because I really like the dichotomy between the Gentleman's Club and John Davis, and I also just happen to think that this match was just a ton of fun. I I went three and three quarters on it and, and flirted with going four just because I just had a ball watching this. Yeah, I went three and a half stars on this. This was a whole lot of fun. They really were able to uh, use different plunder, especially knowing that there would be a TLC match later. So like you weren't going to use chairs and ladders and tables here. So you had stuff like they used a sawhorse for a lot of it. They used a plunger. Chuck Taylor attacked John Davis trying to shove a water bottle into the eye. So like it had a different kind of brutality that really came across really well. There was like this really cool springboard falcon arrow here. And even divorce of context, I know that I'm someone that I feel like out of the two of us, I'm more hard about the John Davis character. But having John Davis come out here and doing a plunder match of Chuck Taylor and then having this big thing about serious Chuck Taylor came across really effective to me. I really enjoyed this. There's a spot where, again, they're using a plunger with the the plunge end broken off of it. So it's kind of like a jagged piece of wood. And Taylor is laying on his back, and Davis stands over him and puts the the jagged edge on what was supposed to be his eye and then hits it with, I, I, I don't know if he had a, I think he had like a pan or something. And he hit, yeah. he hit the plunger into Taylor's eye. And it was such a vicious spot. The issue that I have, because I loved it so much, but then he did it again. And it was kind of like the equivalent of when a wrestler gets a great chop in and it makes a great sound and the crowd reacts to it. And then they do a second chop that isn't as good and it takes away from it. I wish Davis just would have done that spot once because it looked really vicious in like a legitimate kind of way where it wasn't a deathmatch spot but it wasn't just a chair across the back. Like, it was a move that looked deadly. And then he did it again. I was like, oh, well, it can't be that bad then. But the, the first one looked like it killed Taylor, and then he came back and ended up choking Davis out. And this was a win all around. This is the best John Davis has looked in a very long time. Oh, absolutely. I'm complete agreement with you. Does not. It, it's something where 
if this was a thing where he went to Evolve and had this huge Chuck Taylor and they brought to DGUSA, I totally would have been on board with that. You know, like, cause this was, this was a blast. Yeah, it's nice that we're still finding greatness in John Davis. I think when we eventually wrap this project up, he's going to be someone that we're going to have an extended conversation about and just what we think he did well and didn't do well. But it's nice knowing the summer of 2013, he's still delivering it kind of like he did in all of 20, uh, 2011. Absolutely. And then Gabe flowing things together. Uh, Gargano comes out, talks about being a main eventer, and then he talks about as main eventer, he has to stall his stretch because he wants to have the best performance possible as he is the hero of the DGUSA audience. He calls out Chuck Taylor. He calls out Rich Swan here. Rich comes out and wants to attack. Uh, Gargano bails and begs off and like saying, I don't want to have a fight with you. I want to have a wrestling match here because you're my best friend, Rich Swan. And that led us into John Gargano versus Rich Swan. John Gargano defeated Rich Swan with a cheating uh, Gargano explay, uh, escape. Another referee distraction here. Low blow, then using the rope, just completely aping off of the Shingo Takaki finish at WrestleMania weekend. And I, this was really special. I, I ended up really enjoying this. And it's, it's something where like Rich Swan here, I think was excellent here, playing the role and to the point of that he is definitely underrated in the promotion. And then Gargano has a comfort level that we've never seen him as a Bayface champion. Yeah, that's exactly it. Gargano clicked into something after that Shingo match where now just his work in general just makes more sense. He is such a more confident worker. He's more credible. I just, I, I, I really love this era of Gargano because it transcends past just the Strangit USA character. This is around the time where he really breaks out in PWG. He is killing it in AIW. He's getting booked in AAW at this point. And you can see his work greatly increase, uh, not only in terms of the booking he's bookings he's taking, but in terms of his output in those bookings. He's a guy that is figuring it out in this moment. It's a shame that it took him as long as it did to get there, but it, it's almost worth it because I like this run of his so much. This was a match that was on YouTube for free, but when Dragon USA's library got sold, this was taken off of YouTube, unfortunately. I will say I went three and three quarters on it. It's just, it, it's such a good match, and we're in this era now where Gargano starts getting some real detractors from your DVDVR guys, Sagoon Decada guys, Pro Wrestling Only guys, where they look at him as kind of the the next in line of the Tyler Black, Davey Richards, Johnny Gargano type of a guy that just does a lot of moves. And I think that's a, a, a shallow criticism because I think Gargano and Swan, while this is a match full of excess and a full a match full of moves with a Z, I think it is an excellent display of those moves with a Z. Yeah, I'd almost want to say, and maybe this is a little bit of a shot across bow, a little bit intellectually dishonest applying that to this match, you know, <laughs> like just because like there is the storyline, especially if you're someone who like going from like week to week, like seeing how Gargano's story is being told and how Rich Swan, even after the whole Ronin implosion was still by his side and then like having this thing and then just he's really come to his own here. And it's something that like we were always anticipating. When does Johnny Gargano feel like the ace? When is it like this? Cause they presented him as it, but he the, the matches and the output didn't necessarily add up outside of doing a very good babyface thank you for coming here promo 
this was excellent. I, I was three and three quarters as well. This is something that if this was, if they gave this more time and this thing was like an open the Freedom Gate match, very easily like four-star territory talking about one of my top matches in the promotion of this year just because it's a real natural dynamic and it's something that you wouldn't put out as like a comp DVD, but like you have like this whole storyline and it's very compelling stuff and you have like the idea of of Swan, like the guy who stuck with him and then getting portrayed like this. I think it's very compelling old school storytelling in a lot of ways. On the last weekly roundup that Mike and I did talking about Dragon Gate in 2021 on this podcast feed, I compared Jason Lee to Rich Swan in the sense that I think Lee is so incredibly technically proficient, is as sound as anybody is in wrestling right now, just doesn't necessarily get all of the opportunities to have a number of four-plus star matches. And this is the era where Rich Swan is... He's almost like a great TV worker that just happens to be on the indies, where if you needed that three-and-a-half-star match in the middle of your card, Rich Swan was the guy to turn to, and this was just a greater elevation of that. But I, I am so in love with Swan in this era. I think he is so good in one of those guys that's historically underrated for kind of always being maybe in the wrong place at the wrong time. I feel like we've kind of seen one of the worst versions of Swan's career if you run it a hundred times, because I think he's supremely talented. Yeah, yeah, and this is really old-school stuff in this in this promotion, you know, in a lot of ways, and I think that that's, when you, like, look at it in the guise of that, like, this is kind of like a territory storyline that they have going on here. I, I don't remember, and maybe there's a reasoning, maybe, maybe Lenny gave a reason on commentary, and I just don't remember it. Do we know why this was a non-title match? I... I did not kept pick up yeah, on when I, I watched it. I don't it, remember no. there being anything in the news wires about that. I just find it strange that this would be a non-title match. This seems like you could have you could have done something here for the belt. I don't think it affected the match quality at all. I was just wondering why they didn't put the title on the line here. Absolutely, I, I, that's something that looking at how like especially like how Gabe chose when to have title matches and when not to. Maybe it is the idea that. The fourth anniversary show was built up in such a way that he would not have an he would have an open challenger. But then, why isn't Swan in that four way match? Like, th- th- there's there's questions to be asked, to say the least. Yep. And then that was the intermission break. We came back with Trent Beretta on cage match. He's listed as Trent, but he is called Trent Beretta, not Greg Marlashuo. And he defeats Ada with the Crunchy in 12 minutes and 57 seconds. Uh, look, I thought this was awesome. Trent could have worked Dragon Gate easily, and we're about to hit the point where I just remember as a fan thinking like, oh, the Premier Athlete brand is going to go to Japan. We're going to get Conley, Trent, and Anthony Nice in Japan, and it's going to be great. Obviously, that never happens, but we are looking at a night and day difference from Trent at WrestleMania weekend compared to Trent on this show, because in the gap between then and now, he was working FIP, which you can roll your eyes at or laugh at, but he was really good in FIP and was working with guys like Rich Swan, who there's a match coming up in between the next set of shows and now, where Trent and Swan have a match in FIP that's like a four and a half star match that maybe 30 people have seen, because I don't think a lot of people were watching FIP in 2013 or ever, to be fair. But the other thing Trent does is he works at best of the Super Juniors tournament, and I think that fully got whatever WWE rust was there out of his system. And it's not even necessarily the rust, you know? I mean, he was signed so early to WWE. Like, he was, like, one of the youngest signees they had. And 
he kind of was like stuck in the system pre NXT working in deep South then in FCW. And then he hits the Indies and he wasn't someone that I really had much thoughts about before, but then he, he's really coming out here and performing and him and him and Ada had instant chemistry. It was something that was kind of remarkable. Like this was also another kind of big little match, like, like with a real brutal uh, turnbuckle bomb by Trent onto Ada. And then, there was an insane camera angle between the ropes as Ada did this in between the ropes. Tope Con Hello that went right into the crowd. Davy Richards would have been proud. <laughs> and just was like a really solid match to not overstay its welcome. It's it, We've talked about good three and a half star matches and bad three and a half star matches. This is a good three and a half star match. I'm right at three and a half as well. And the, the spot that I will take away from this is Ada goes to do... Ada's never really done Sasuke specials, so I don't know what he was going for, but he kind of is looking to go and cartwheel over the ropes, and I think he wanted to end up doing a Huracan Rana. I don't know what he was trying, but he got caught up in the ropes, and so Trent just took him and powerbombed him viciously onto the apron. It was such a nasty spot that got such a great reaction out of me that, oh my god, I just, I loved it. A very, very fun three and a half star match. Absolutely. And then we went into another kind of special challenge. I'm surprised Gabe didn't call these special challenge <laughs> matches because they kind of were. They kind of were. But, and but it was do, doesn't this card feel fresh? Like Ata versus oh, Trent yeah. is a nice little match. Uh, Taylor versus Davis, even though those guys have been around for a while, that's something different. Gargano and Swan is a first time ever match. And then you have a new guy in the fold and Nice against Akira Tozawa. Yeah, yeah. This is... This is a sleeper great DGUSA. It really card. is. I, I, I held off my thoughts before we got into this, but as I was watching this, I don't have a match here below three stars. And that's very rare for me in DGUSA where I've gone a lot lower on things than you have kids, but I love this show. This show is a blast. Yeah, in Tozawa versus Nice, my assumption is given the timeline that this got Anthony Nice his tour of Japan because Anthony Nice was awesome in this match. So, case my exact note I have in in the uh, in my notebook for this, it's clear why Nice got a tour out of this. I think I have in my notes. <laughs> nice probably got booked immediately after he did his flop dive on Tozawa because that was just oh. that that's the kind of thing that Dr- the Dragon Gate office was looking for from guys at the time. I I mean I imagine that Shima immediately pulled Gabe after the show and asked him if he could watch this clip over and over. He again. asked how many abs does that guy have and does he have a passport. <laughs> and he ended up dead. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. So, uh, Anthony Nice defeats Akira Tozawa clean with 450 splash. I went four and a quarter stars, and given how this year is, this will be on my top 10 list. Just an absolute blast. Nice is showing out all throughout here. And again, you see a Nice get this big thing against the most popular guy in the company, Akira Tozawa. And you, you look at how Nice has been booked since the Premier Athlete brand has become a thing, and he comes off like an absolute star here. And it's something that. It would have been real interesting to see like the alternative t- timeline if Nice would have been a DGUSA champion because he definitely at this moment feels like he's on that trajectory. Yeah, my big complaint about this match is nothing that had to do with the work. I was four stars on the dot, thought it was just really well worked. I, nice is so exciting, and I've never really been an Anthony Nice guy. My take on him has always been that he is actually perfect in the position he's in right now, albeit maybe a yeah. little under push there, but he's always he's always been a guy to me that has done his best work in the WWE system, whether it's because they help him put together his matches or the the expected work rate is just a little bit lower. I've always really liked Nice in the 205 Live system, 
Whereas on the indies, there would be times like he never felt like a PWG guy. He never really fit in there. But this match, he has everything going for him. It's a great match with Tozawa. The issue is that they cut to a camera on the floor at some point, and the Drangate USA ring apron is kind oh, of yeah. on the apron, kind of not, and you just see the bottom of the ring exposed. And it's not that the American Legion Hall in Reseda is any sort of classy venue, or that FET music is Madison Square Garden, or that even just the Ring of Honor system with all of its flaws and production woes, uh, you know, you can criticize that. But to have the ring apron just looking just as awful as it did, coming out of intermission, no less, could nobody have fixed that? Like, why does everything on Drangit USA shows look like shit? Because the product is so good, and I really think that matters when you're trying to attract more eyeballs. If the product was hot, this wouldn't matter, but the product isn't hot, and something like that looks lazy, and it annoys me as a viewer, because I've got to watch this great match in a ring that looks no safer than something that Ian Rodden would contract. And... No, no, I follow you there, Kaz. Yeah, I don't know uh, what word I was trying to say at the end. You know what I mean, though. Yeah, and, and it's something that, like, since the start of the promotion, Gabe was like, look at how great our our, our ring canvas is. Look at the pads. And then he cheaped out. Because this is the same thing that I've noticed a lot on these shows, and I've turned off my type A brain a little bit, Kaz. So I'm glad you're with me on this. The fact that he basically used broadcast or, or like, promotion banners as ring aprons is such a fucking low-rent thing. And you know I try not to curse on these shows. I know you try to. It, it is so Shendi is when when we've talked about like who is number three in the country. Ring of Honor never had ring apron issues, and they always had things that looked like a legitimate ring apron. But Gabe always does this, and this is something that happened even through like Evolve, where like he would cheap out on things like this. That it's like when he talks about wanting to offer like a premier product, and you want you want to have like a supreme like fan experience. You go there and like oh. You have this, like, basically, essentially, a graphically printed tarp that falls off the ring. They don't care enough to, like, get it grommeted so you could strap it to it. So you could, like, string the rope around it so it sticks up. And even if you're going to go cheap out on this way and you have something like this that becomes an attractment in a match that I think is excellent is really a... You don't deserve to be the number three promotion in the country when you're doing stuff like that. Like, in 2021... As much as, in a lot of a way, a toxic brand impacts us teenage wrestling is, do you think that they would ever like have an issue like this? I would hope not, but I also have been thinking lately about just how awful that promotion has been pretty consistently for 20 years, so I can't put it past them. I'm sure that it's happened at some point. But it's something that maybe it is, and, and that wasn't a fair comparison because through the tower of absolute dreck that TNA slash Impact Wrestling has created us now for the... Almost the entirety of your life, guys. It's, I, this is the one time I'm I, I I'm turning it. it around on you for once. I'm turning this around on you. You can't make me feel old because you've been your lifespan since you have been able to have intelligent thought has been around Impact Wrestling. It, but, but to your point, to to add to your point, Ring of Honor has never had this issue. No, no. And, and it's and the same I, thing if you watch these shows. Like you were talking earlier about, you know, it's gay booking of oh everything's kind of bleeding into one another, which is fine to an extent, but. There's no backstage segments anymore. They're never cutting to Lenny. There's no replays. The last backstage segments we really saw were in California where Gabe was filming them on an iPhone, which to me is unacceptable. So now you're in a position 
where if you want to develop Johnny Gargano's character, now you have to have him cut promos in front of an audience, and it's, you know, kind of a a, a double-ended sort of like, yes, I understand Gabe wants to tell stories, and he's probably helping these guys in the long run by having Gargano do such character-driven stuff, but... I also, at this point, am watching PWG DVDs where Johnny Gargano is having amazing matches, and I want to cheer for Johnny Gargano because of that, and Johnny Gargano is probably going to get signed off of that. So, it's just, there's a level of laziness in Dragon at USA that, that bugs me, and on a show like this where we're praising so much stuff, I feel like that needs to be brought up, that I don't know when it dies, it's probably at the end of 2010 when they they really start to roll back their pay-per-view option. They, I think they have two pay-per-views in 2011, but after that, it's all iPay-per-view. Just the the production laziness, which has always been a thing with Gabe that he never totally figured out, but it's really noticeable and it's really bad at this point in Dragon Gate USA. Yeah, and it's something that I, my production brain, I've turned off for a lot of this, but you look at like the product you're trying to put on here. Everyone else is having hd cameras have been around in wrestling at least for the last four years at this point i think ring of honor had ring had hd cameras impact had hd cameras and i don't remember when exactly when gabe actually buys an hd camera uh, it's, so yeah, ju- it's, it's january of 2014 it's the first evolved triple shot of the new year so it's coming up yeah but it's one of those things like you look at this product here and we lament about how it's been completely vaulted and neither of us really expect this to ever appear on the network but like why would you put this on the network when it looks this bad when you like have a promotion that doesn't have the care to keep a ring apron up that has that that shot backstage angles on someone's iphone whatever but it wasn't like shooting in hd or even close to 480p why would you yeah it's it's just frustrating it's one of those, and granted, part of it is just the production stuff I like, where I know I've mentioned, I think on this show before, like the thing that AEW does where Taz breaks down finishing moves is my favorite thing in wrestling because I've always wanted the product to be presented like that. I'm not saying Gabe needs to reinvent the wheel, but you can tell he just stopped caring. And a knock that I have on Gabe for as much as I like him and for as much as I, I think people dogpile on him too much you can always tell when Gabe is truly invested, like in Ring of Honor in 2005 and 2006, or Evolve in 2016, and you can tell when Gabe kind of has one foot out the door, like Ring of Honor in 2008 or Drangit USA in 2013. Absolutely, and it just, just and it's something that, like, there's so much on the show that I really enjoy, especially after shows where I was just kind of like, okay, all right, there's, like, one match I like, but, like, on the show that I really adore that like it can't it it just can't find success because of effort or care and I know that like cameras at this time it sure it's an investment on a promotion on a scale here but you're going to make that investment sooner rather than later and he does and it's just one of those things like imagine if you imagine if there is there is care being put into Ring of uh, into Dragon Gate USA at this time with this match like imagine what trajectory that could have been like and that's even taking like the whole eye pay-per-view issues that they would have out the window like if there was a monoclonal care more so than caring about Johnny Gargano 
Yeah, it's it's just a frustrating aspect. It's it just comes down to laziness. And for as good as this Nice versus Tozawa match was to get back on track there, and it's you know something where again Anthony Nice got a job out of this match. I'm assuming. I don't want to have to think about the ring apron, but that is the position mm-hmm. that Dragon Gate USA has put me in. And then, getting back into the show itself, after the match, Christina Von Eri gets into Anthony's face, and then Sue Young makes her debut as the secretary of the premier athlete brand. If you're someone who's watching Modern Day Impact, basically the whole Susan character, that's what she was doing here, attacked her with a shoe, like beat her down, and then we had a big Mr. A splash, a solid segment. Mr. A pops me every time doing the splash. I have said since Christina Von Eri showed up, I don't have an issue with her being here, but I don't understand why she's here. All of that confusion was made worth it because she took this splash from Mr. A, and I believe this is the last time we see her. And if it is, awesome. I salute her because she did her job well on this night and this night only when she took a splash from a 300-pound man off the top rope. This segment was awesome. I am so in on the Premier Athlete brand right now. And then we get to the main event. It is the best two out of three falls, but really, you want to win all three falls here. Uh, Six-man tag team match, gate to heaven. So the rules, as Case mentioned earlier, the first fall is strict tag team rules. They brought out someone to tie shoelace onto the uh, onto the turnbuckle pads because you were not able to tag in without having the tag rope, and they would be fiercely doing this. There were two referees at ringside to make sure that the rules were being enforced, Case. And then we had a Dragon Gate standard tag team match after that, and then the TLC match to conclude it. If someone, if one team swept all three falls, they'd be, each member would be able to make the matches of their choice. The two teams were Ricochet and the Young Bucks of Nick Jackson and Matt Jackson versus Air Fox, Shima, and Tomahawk TT. Uh, the uh, Young Bucks and Ricochet won this match two falls to one, so they did not get the ultimate victor thing. And the falls were Ricochet winning the first fall on Air Fox via a shooting star press, Shima trapping Nick Jackson in an arm stretch muffler to tie it, and then the final fall was Ricochet panning Shima with a 630 splash after a more bang for your buck. Mike, I love this match so much. This match was, like, I knew I'd like to go again. It was so much better than I remember it. But I'm curious from you, because you had this, this was not a gimmick match that resonated with you. You didn't really have memory of it from the last time we talked. What are your thoughts on the idea? What are your thoughts on the execution of it? And then we can talk about your thoughts on the match. So the idea is interesting, and it does show some creativity and some care as we spent 10 minutes bagging the lack of care in this promotion. (laughs) So like, there's foresight here, and it's something where we've seen in the past, especially like Chuck Taylor winning that one match and then calling a shot against Yamato as Open the Free and Gate champion, that people do get these opportunities. It It's something that did not come across as force. It came across as interesting. Like the idea of in a promotion that has essentially Lucha Libre rules, that enforcing the rules strictly adds a dimension to it that I find intriguing. And then you also have the aspect that what is the thing that Gabe Sapolsky is known for a two out of three fall matches case? Doing two straight falls. Yes. So if you're someone, and, in, and you would be someone watching this product, probably unless you do not watch Ring of Honor and just were kind of parachuting in, you're someone that's like, Gabe could have someone win all three falls. So like you have that thought of like what could happen there. So I think the concept 
in of itself is interesting. The execution of it, you know, other than uh, the bad count for the the bad tap out on the second fall, I feel like that all six guys, for as much effort as you expect out of the six guys, you know, like I feel like the execution of it was fine. There were a couple shots across the bows and the fact that Ricochet would have a United Gate match the next night against Rich Swan, which is kind of an unforced error in a way. And then the match itself, I really enjoyed it. Uh, if it wasn't for the fact of how much my brain was exploded by how good Anthony Nice was in the previous match, this would have been my match tonight. I also went four and a quarter stars on this. I thought this was very well executed. I felt like the concept came across well, and it was like a nice wrinkle of showing care and trying to introduce something new into Dragon Gate USA at a time where it could use something like this. I love the gimmick. I wish they would have been given the opportunity to do another version of this match. I think the rules are smart. I think it's intriguing. I think it shows off a lot of different things. I really like this gimmick. And to your point of it, it doesn't feel forced. The The ladders are legal fray match was like, what is this? The, what, who's getting over from this? This doesn't really benefit anybody. This, I like this. This fits the tone of Dragon Gate USA. The execution of, obviously, the Dragon Gate rules portion of it, the, the, the Lucha Libre rules, makes sense. The TLC aspect of this made sense. I don't feel like they got over the idea of strict tag rules, though, because they're in a spot where Ricochet and Nick Jackson are double-teaming T-Hawk, behind the referee's back and at that point what is the referee on the floor doing and they just they treated it like it was a normal match at that point and that was what really bugged me was I know the heels are supposed to get the advantage at that part of the match but wouldn't you want to really enforce that gimmick that's the one flaw that I think is in this match is that they didn't totally figure out how to make the most of that first fall yeah, and the fact that that came right to the finish that fall, I think that's an entirely fair point to be made about it. Uh, it's interesting, though, like, the TLC aspect was the one that was the most eye-raising thing because, like, there were a lot of teases with stuff with Shima where I'm like, oh, Shima's not going to take that. Come <laughs> on, guys. So if you take Shima, like, it made sense why Shima was in this match, but, like, if you put someone, like, I'm just going to pull someone up, someone who we know will do plunder, and take ladder spots and take table spots in that. Maybe that would have been a little bit more believable in this, but like there was a moment towards the finish. I was like, Shima's not going to go through that table when you have a ladder set on the outside. Come on. And maybe that's my own like innate pessimism of being a Dragon Gate fan now for over 15 years. I'm like, I know this guy well enough, even though I've never talked to the guy. And I know Shima's not going through that table. And maybe that was something that's just my own, I don't even want cynicism coming into play there. But to their credit, even though Shima was a non-factor for a lot of this plunder stuff, the third fall of this match was totally insane. You've got AR Fox, and we didn't really talk about the venue, this Queensboro Elks Lodge that I actually thought looked nice on camera, but it is such a small venue, there is no room between the ring and the guardrail. It, I mean, I almost wonder if it would make more sense to just not have a guardrail, but I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know the logistics entirely, but there's not a lot of room between the ring apron and the fans, but they went ballistic on the outside of the ring. They set up a giant ladder where AR Fox does a, a leg drop off the ladder onto the apron where he crushes Matt Jackson's neck 
And then Nick Jackson sets up a table. It does a frog splash uh, to Tomahawk TT through a table. And then AR Fox climbs the ladder again and misses a swanton bomb off the top of the ladder through a table before the Young Bucks finally pin Shima, which is also really important to note that Shima took that fall. I'm at four and a half stars, and had they executed the first fall better, I would probably go four and three quarters because I loved the last two falls of this match. I'm all in on this gimmick. I really wish they would have been afforded the opportunity to do another one. I think it is just another one of those Young Bucks matches that nobody's seen. But, you know, I've followed their careers and I was watching at the time. I know how good this match was, how great this match was, really. I'm just a huge fan of how this show ended. Yeah, yeah. And it's an interesting match because on commentary, Lenny Leonard, it's like, well, the Young Bucks will be in another promotion soon that they are and that's something that shima took uh question of and i guess that's the justification for him being here but the 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 thing that really kind of stuck out for me at least in the first few falls were how much tomahawks like shows so much charisma here and how much everyone missed the boat on having ricochet be a heel because he was such a good like prickish heel here and i feel like i've said this now for like a year and a half in this promotion that ricochet like doing the vet card stuff to air fox is great the bucks of course this is stuff that's right up their alley and it's something that i've been interested to see like if they did this match in 2010 with ronin versus blood warriors how interesting would that have been like the idea of ronin versus shima naruki doi naruki doi will do some play oh yeah he's not afraid of that and ricochet at that point like that could have been a really interesting thing because you know the idea of ronin trying to get respect having that aspect there and you could have had like this idea this could have been like a big yearly match for dg usa and they've been able to refine it that there wouldn't be the issues with the traditional rules match or what even yeah i mean it's interesting i was just reading some notes that will come into play when we get into 2014 i was reading some old news wires just kind of looking ahead to to refresh my memory on some stuff and i gabe has a a note in a news wire that was very interesting to me when interesting to me when it pertains to the future of the promotion but if we wanted to just extend Dragon Gate USA's life by a few more years, you have your annual six-man at WrestleMania weekend, and then if it fits, you do your Gateway to Heaven match, the anniversary show weekend, and then you can kind of begin to earmark uh, the, these big events with a with a gimmick match that the crowd knows about, that the fans care about. I like this gimmick. I think my biggest complaint about American wrestling has been that no one has really embraced the six man tag match. I think AEW is very close to doing it. And when they eventually launch their trios titles, I trust them that they'll be able to do it. And that eventually, if you care enough about six man matches and your crowd is invested, you can kind of steal a concept like this. I really think there's something to this gimmick and I hope a promotion at least, you know, and I know Indy, Promoters aren't watching anything but 1998 Raws at this point. But if anyone had their finger on the pulse, I would be looking at this and trying to adopt it to my promotion because I I really, really like this kind of match. Yeah, I went four and a quarter. And like my only frustration really was how that second fall was ruined by the bad uh, tap out there. But it just was a a blast and it gave a breath of fresh air and a promotion that really was trying to grab onto anything that would give them some sort of momentum. And it's something that, like, we talked about I had no memory of this. Imagine if this was something that, like, people, like, got behind. If there was momentum behind this match and people were like, 
well, this is like an insane thing that DGUSA is doing because they're DGUSA and they don't have tags really. So you do um, you do one fall that is like that, that has rules that's like very defined, and then each fall gets progressively more and more to the point where like the rules are thrown out the window. It's an interesting concept, maybe a little too cute for half, I guess, but it's something that this promotion needs to try to be doing things too cute for half, just try to grab onto any sign of life. Yeah, for me, it worked. Again, I would have liked the first fall to be executed a little bit better, but I I like the match. I like this show. I'm very, very happy with this. And it's just one of those things, you know, you scratch your head and you go, is it a is it a booking thing? Is it a production thing? Is it just the brand at this point that people don't care about? But we've seen, what has it been now, six shows in 2013? I think the California shows were were not offensive. At times they were just okay, but they weren't offensive. Two great shows in New Jersey, and now this one, and no one cares. Yeah, like they're trying to do whatever they can, and no one cares. And maybe it's past the point of redemption at this point. I think that will become very apparent on the next set of shows, but we still have to get to the fourth anniversary show. This is the final show in the program that I have not seen before. I'll be going into this as a new viewer from the Highline Ballroom in Manhattan, New York City. This card is John Davis versus Drew Gulak, Caleb Conley versus Shane Strickland, Anthony Nice versus Uha Nation, a Chikara Showcase eight-man tag, throwing it back to the very first show, uh, and then a, a four-way match for the Open the Freedom Gate number one contendership between Shima, Akira Tozawa, Tomahawk TT, and Ata. The winner of that match will challenge Johnny Gargano for the Open the Freedom Gate title. And then also on this show, Tremperetta versus AR Fox and the Open the United Gate title match between the Young Bucks and Rich Swan and Ricochet. It's an interesting card. I looked at it before we recorded and, you know, it's this promotion's in a very... It, like it's in its death spiral like well like i can't beat around the bush and i'm like hey no things are in on the up and up of dragon gate usa no no this promotion will be dead this promo this will be the last anniversary weekend that dg usa has like lo, lo, like i know i've been kind of cute with that kind of stuff but like we're, we're we're in the final stretch here but they still had interesting stuff that they're willing to put on kids well we've spent a lot of time when you know a callahan or a del sol or a moxley or a Pac leaves the promotion I do like kind of recapping their time in Dragon Gate USA. And if you look at this show, there is so much talent that we never see again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially if you like look at this show to the Fearless and Freedom Fight 2013 shows, and we'll get more in depth to, to it there. I mean, big changes are afoot, not necessarily for the better. I mean... Just like looking at the foreign talent and the Japanese talent, we'll be saying a lot of goodbyes next week. It's unfortunate, Mike, but that is Dragon Gate USA, and they are unfortunate. They are unfortunate, but fortunately, Case, we still have seven more Dragon Gate USA shows to talk about. Oh, boy. So we're getting to the final stretch. Things are going to get really wet and wild here, guys. Like, I, I, I really, I looked at the Fearless show just to look, just to look ahead a little bit, and boy... We're going to get a collection of names I, out ahead I of us. I was curious to see if you're going to recognize a name on those shows, and I already know who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's going to do it here for Rewind and Rewatch. Thank you all again for sticking with us as we are now rapidly coming to the conclusion of Dragon Gate USA. 
You can follow Case at underscore in your case. You can follow me at Fujiheya. You can follow the podcast at Open Voice Gate. Case, anything else you want to hit on before we get out of here? Nope, that's it. All right, so that'll do us. That'll do it for us until next time. Thank you for listening to Open Voice Gate. Take care.